0: You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things
1: geek.
2: Hi, I'm Joe Heath.
0: I'm Tony Heath.
2: And this is the Watchathon of Rassilon.
0: A podcast.
2: That you're listening to. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. We're going to be doing something a little different. We're going to be doing our first ever interview. Yeah. Very cool. We've got with us today uh, someone who actually worked on Doctor Who, Richard Starkings. Hello. Hi there. You are a comic book writer, letterer, an editor, and especially relevant to this podcast, you were the editor of the 7th Doctor Comics, published oh. in Doctor Who magazine. I was. So, you did it all? Yeah, basically. <laughs> so you did... Issues 134 to 155, which were released from February 1988 to November 1989. And then you did, you wrote Cold Blooded War. Well. Cold
1: Blooded War over a plot by Gary Russell, yeah.
2: Very cool. So, nowhere. yeah. Gosh. Two facts! And we read all of the stuff you've worked on and written for Doctor Who. Well, not all the lettering, because you did a lot of lettering. Yeah.
1: Right? I lettered a lot of Sixth Doctor before I became the editor with Seventh Doctor, yeah. And then you did uh, and then the new comics? And then all the Titan stuff, which is sort of a whole other block of cheese Was that fun, getting to letter that stuff, because you also got to like read it? It was going through so fast. I mean, they were doing four books a month for about two or three years. Oh, my gosh. Wow. So one of the secrets of lettering is that you pretty much forget what you just lettered (laughs) when you're on the next job. So I, I do remember I thought Nick Abadzis did a great job. A lot of my friends worked on that. Boo Cook illustrated some Matt Smith stuff. Uh, he was my cover artist on Elephant Men. Dave Taylor. It was some beautiful, beautiful work. Rachel Scott. She was incredible at drawing the 12th Doctor. And Roberta in Granata did an incredible job on Jodie Whittaker. It was great that each Doctor attracted sort of the definitive artist, which mm-hmm. has sort of been the way over the years you know like dave gibbons is sort of the definitive tom baker artist so you started working on the sixth doctor i traded lettering assignments with annie parkhouse who was then annie half in order to work on doctor who which was sort of one of my dream jobs at the time uh, much to the chagrin of the editor sheila cranner but i basically offered annie more work lettering my book which was Action Force or G.I. Joe to take Doctor Who off our hands and yeah I was a young upstart that was my nickname at, at Marvel UK so I sort of engineered being able to work on the strip Because I love Doctor Who, because I wanted to, you know, work on the strips, so. So, how much Doctor Who have you consumed? Uh, All of it. All of it? Yeah, pretty much. Televised and expanded? I did try with the audios. I listened Mm -hmm. to most of Paul McGann's early stuff, when Mm -hmm. that was New Who. And then, actually, when New Who was announced, when the Eccleston series was announced... I know for a fact that it hurt the sales of Big Finish because people were buying the Big Finish audios because that was it. That was mm-hmm. New Who and sales dropped when the Axton series announced and then they slowly picked up again. And there's just too much yeah. audio. There's you know, there's too much Doctor Who. I never read any of the new adventures except the Russell T. Davis one. I think I read it Mark. Gatiss one and a couple of others that had sort of a veneer of authenticity about them, either retroactively or at that time.
2: Like, uh, what was that one? The one with the scarecrows. That was based on a book, I believe,
1: right? Uh, Human Nature, yeah, Yeah. by Paul Cornell, who actually wrote to me as an 18-year-old... When I was the editor of the strip, asking me how to become a writer, and I have no recollection of this, (laughs) but Paul, I was at Gallifrey one year, the Los Angeles Doctor Who convention, and Stephen Moffat was there. This was the first year of New Who, and embarrassingly, Paul was explaining to Stephen Moffat how I'd encouraged him as a young writer and reinvented lettering in the digital sphere. And it's clear Stephen Moffat had no interest in him. <laughs> so. But Paul, bless him, has been grateful to me ever since. He often mentions that I wrote back to him. He wrote me a letter back in the days when we wrote letters. And editors could only communicate with freelancers through the mail. I apparently wrote him a very long letter encouraging him. Oh, and nice. then he wrote the first strip that I didn't edit was written by... Paul Cornell. It was, I think, called Stairway to Heaven. Mm, is that the Is that the one with Frobisher? Did you say it was before or after your run? It was after. Oh, it was okay, the first after. one after. No, Frobisher was created by Steve Parkhouse. Okay, brilliant, brilliant writer.
2: I knew about Frobisher before getting into Doctor Who because we have a friend I'm, who loves me. Say
0: that's our friend Ray's right. like favorite all time favorite Doctor Who character is Frobisher. He's
1: a great character. <laughs> you
2: know? I do think it's interesting that in your run, there's not a. Companion.
1: No, that was by design. Mm-hmm. I actually got rid of the companion in the first story I edited because there was a story called Cold Day in Hell written by Simon Furman, who's a great writer, very solid, dependable writer who I worked on staff with. He was assistant editor on Transformers for a long time, and then he became the writer on Transformers. He's probably written more Transformers than any other writer. And Sheila had hired him to do a story, and I think they got the rights to the Ice Warriors. He introduced this character who was a heat vampire, Mm -hmm. you know, which Ice Warriors, heat vampire... It worked in that story, and uh, I was asked to take over editing the comic strip. Coincidentally, John Ridgway was leaving, costs on Doctor Who Monthly had gone up, sales had gone down, so I was encouraged to hire younger, cheaper artists. Mm -hmm. But the first thing I said to Simon was, okay, write me a story that makes it plausible that the doctor's going to have a heat vampire as a companion (laughs) that will work outside an ice warrior story or write me a story where you write her out and i picked the one where he wrote her out you know she was like a fugitive and being tracked down but i always felt that you don't need a companion in the comic strip firstly because it was eight pages a month so i wanted as much doctor as you could get and if the story allowed for a companion-like character than having him him or her in that scenario rather than dragging a heat vampire through Victorian (laughs) London, you know, which might have been interesting, but I also wanted to break with this tradition of having one writer write it all the time. That was not, to me, the format of the show. Mm -hmm. So why would it be the format of the comic strip? So I wanted a new writer and artist on every arc in the way that you have a new writer and director on on every story, you know. So, yeah, that was, to me, if we couldn't get the current companion, and we could, but you had to pay more. And again, mm-hmm. right, sales were going down. It was the last years of uh, Sylvester McCoy. So paying more for a, the likeness for Companion just didn't make sense so yeah we got rid of the Companion
2: uh, Speaking of you said you got different writers uh, you got one of my favourite Grant Morrison yep. which is
1: fantastic that- Well you say that but at the time he was just Grant Yeah you know, He was uh, he'd written a story The World Shapers which was based on a misunderstanding he had about some continuity <laughs> uh, which I think he he admitted in an interview after the fact that he, he wrote the story that connected the Ward to the Cybermen I think is that 6 Doctor story? Yes, it was 6 Doctor story. So I knew he liked Doctor Who and I knew that he was available because he had not been snapped up by Vertigo at that point. Plus, I was working on Zoids, which was published as Spider-Man and Zoids, so Zoids was a toy property similar to Transformers, except they they were robot dinosaurs on this planet called Zoidstar. And Ian Rimmer, who is the editor of the strip, was writing it. And Tom DeFalco came over from Marvel US and sort of said, well, you shouldn't be writing the strip you're editing. You know, this was sort of the Jim Shooter days of Marvel Comics, where it was much more structured... They put an end to what was called the writer-editor because they felt like, you know, a writer should be working with an editor, not represent both roles. So Ian actually had written Zoids for, I don't know, 15 issues and was quite happy to shed the load. And I wrote a story. And then we actually bugged. Ian to hire Grant, myself and John Thomason, who was the, an art editor over there. We were all reading Swamp Thing at the time, written by Alan Moore and what was interesting is that a lot of storylines in Zoids seemed to echo Alan's Swamp Thing stories. There was a, there was definitely, Grant was reading Swamp Thing too, and sort of ideas and conceits about how the story was told were echoed. Mm. So it was very much the days when Alan Moore had changed the way comics were written. You know, And of course he wrote some Doctor Who backup strips back in the old days of Doctor Who Weekly but Grant was a a really hard-working and imaginative writer he did a little story for me for Action Force where I wanted to use Master of Kung Fu as a backup in Mm -hmm. Action Force so he wrote a little story where Quick Kick reminisces about his old teacher Shang-Chi to connect the G.I. Joe and Marvel universes. And nice. I, know, I know that he went to his comic book store yeah. and bought up back issues of Master of Kung Fu <laughs> as research for a five-page throwaway strip. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time he worked with Steve Yole, who he went on to work with on Zenith and even The Invisibles. So a lot of Grant's early working relationships were actually forged at Marvel UK. And Brian Hitch, mm-hmm. young Brian Hitch, worked on the one story he did for me, Grant Morrison did for me. And I remember I, I wrote to Grant when he lived at 20 Huntley Gardens in Glasgow. I can remember his address because i sent so many packages to him. He doesn't live there now. Um, <laughs> it's important that we say that but um i said i want a doctor who story where he encounters something completely alien and grant wrote back well if he does that then he'll suffocate on page one because it won't be a breathable atmosphere <laughs> but then he came up with this really interesting story where it's sort of a submolecular story I can't even remember what it was called. Do you remember? Uh, culture, culture shock. Culture shock. You know. So in fact, that's what he did. It's like culture shock. You know. Mm-hmm. It was a, I think most writers like to have an idea to sort of bounce off of. That may. Like a prompt. That may even have been one of his last stories for Marvel UK before. The door of Vertigo
2: out wide. Uh, you were talking about um, that Master of Kung Fu sort of combining. Oh, we gotta talk about, yeah, we gotta, uh, ta- we gotta talk about Death's Head. Death's Head, yeah.
1: <laughs> oh, I was all in favor of. So, you know, tell me I can't do something <laughs> and I wanna do it more. It wasn't just Death's Head, we had the Sleeze Brothers. Mm-hmm. I introduced some metamorphs called Guanzulam, and they weren't just in Doctor Who, where they we used them as a Seven Doctors story. They were also in Ghostbusters, Thundercats, <laughs> and I think in RoboCapers, I think Lou Stringer, who was a cartoonist who did little backup strips, I think I had him design them. We weren't allowed to create a shared universe, so I was like, well, we can suggest that there's a shared universe. And actually, that Sleeves Brothers strip cannot be reprinted because... The Slees Brothers was an epic comic, had an epic contract, John Carmel and Andy Lanning, who are friends of mine that created the Police Brothers, own the copyrights. So you won't see that one reprinted. You have to hunt down <laughs> that issue of DWM. That's
2: the one where the, the meddling monk has a yeah. toilet tartus. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, that's Andy. Andy Lanning's a great sense of humour. John, too.
2: I think it's definitely the funniest uh, yeah. one out of the run. So. Yeah,
1: and you know we had three or four artists on that. I think it may even have been a deadline buster that we like how do we get this done quickly which was often the case even though I was pretty far ahead with Doctor Who because it was black and white and when I was handed the strip you know being able to work with three different writers meant I could get three different stories going and in fact John Ridgway was was upset because he he thought there wasn't enough work and he's like well how come you've you've just commissioned six months worth of work so Sheila had him come back to do a story called Echoes of the Mogor Um, shortly after and Dan Abner wrote that one another writer who's gone on to great things but Death Said though was actually solving a problem. Death's head was the size of a Transformer, which is like, you know, you. 150 feet tall, whatever they are. And we needed him. We wanted him to be human size because he was getting his own comic. This is the fun of working in, you know, Marvel offices that we, we were just knocking around ideas. And uh, one of us said, it's pretty, we can't use the, the Master's Compression Eliminator. And was like, why can't we? <laughs> you know, we can do anything. I'm editor of both strips. <laughs> <laughs> so and I'm not sure they'd be able to reprint that one. I'm not sure if they have reprinted that. In the Death's Head book, I don't think they reprint that one. And we also did a crossover with Fantastic Four, which ultimately led to Death's Head working for the Time Variance Authority because Walt Ah. Simonson loved drawing the character and got him to draw a cover. And Walt liked drawing him so much. Um, He put him in one of his issues of Fantastic Four that introduced the Time Variance Authority, which you do know Mm -hmm. is based on the TVA here in Tennessee. Is it? I did not know that. Walt's dad used to work for the TVA here. What? I I've constantly thought I'm that just while watching. Say, Loki. How could you It's not? driven me but, yeah. crazy that they're
0: the yeah. same.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. He posted that recently when Loki season
2: two. And like Loki, the out. TV show is the most like next to Doctor Who the most Doctor Who show on yeah. TV. Yeah. <laughs>
1: especially the finale of season two is mm-hmm. so Moffat. Yeah, it is, isn't
2: it? Does that mean that the Doctor is now officially a part of the Marvel universe? <laughs> there was
1: going to be a crossover with Doctor Strange. The Two Doctors. Oh, that yeah. makes sense. Um, oh, nice. And there was a piece of artwork, which you can probably find online. It's, it's in one of my albums on Facebook. Lee Sullivan, this is after I stopped editing the strip. John Freeman became the editor. And there was a lot of crossover work with Marvel at the time, sort of Marvel UK, the editor-in-chief was Paul Neary, who was an artist who'd worked on Captain America and other titles. He did a lot of books that crossed over with the X-Men Wolverine, you name it. And I know because I was living in New York at the time and I was working with Bob Harris who was the editor of the X-Men, that that Bob was not happy about it but couldn't do anything about it and I think the mistake they made with Doctor Who, Doctor Strange was they asked for permission I never asked for permission (laughs) (laughs) You know, so I just did Death's Head as a crossover. I I think we may have asked somebody internally, can we do this? Why not? You know, (laughs) and those days, you know, there weren't any trade paperbacks in those days. Trade paperbacks were a mid to late 90s. Concept. Whereas all the Titan Doctor Who strips, the whole idea was to put them in those hardcovers. Right. Mm. You know, because Titan knew that they could sell those into news agents in the UK and into W.H. Smiths and Waterstones. And, and I'm sure that when Matt Smith was riding high, that, you know, those books sold really, really well. And they did oversized hardcover editions. You know, the, the whole idea with Titan's series was. Book collections, you know, build mm-hmm. up a graphic novel line, mm-hmm. and they did like thirty or forty of them. I mean, there's a lot of collections, um, and yes, we lettered all of them. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you?
2: We know how you got into Doctor Who, which is weaseling your way in. How did you? Uh, how did you get into lettering in the
1: first place? I didn't weasel my way in. <laughs> <Wow. I didn't. laughs> The name of my studio is Comic Craft. I was crafty. Okay, okay. <laughs> um, how did I get into comics? Or yeah, how did you get into lettering? Yeah. Into, well, um, that goes back to uh, a magazine called Warrior, which mm-hmm. gave birth to v for Vendetta, Miracle Man slash Marvel Man. It was the brainchild of their Skin, who of course launched Doctor Who Weekly, and hit, they ran articles about how to get into comics. That was sort of number one. You know, I, I didn't. I never had a plan B. I was like, I am going to work in comics. And in one of the articles, he said, "Well, you know, one of the easier ways to get in is to take up lettering." And I was like, "I already do that at school in my, <laughs> you know, my uh, my rough book." So I had been drawing Doctor Who comic strips for the monthly magazine of the Doctor Who Appreciation Society, mm-hmm. and that was called Who and Crew. And I did a hundred. Comic strips. It was not only in TARDIS, it was in Doctor Who Bulletin, uh, which was a sort of rival fanzine at the time. This was when the quality of fanzines was just getting better and better because printing. Oh, I had more stuff to read now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> I was basically drawing that comic strip to practice my lettering. I sent those to a lot of different comic book publishers, got some work on a comic called Wizard and Chips, lettering a four page strip about Captain Kidd, who was a pirate that was a baby. <laughs> um, that's the kind of stuff you get in British comics. Deskin gave me a uh, it was an Italian reprint. These were in the latter days of Warrior. But ultimately that led me to lettering Transformers and other work for Marvel UK. And because I was going into the office every week, I eventually got offered the job that I'd been turned down for a few months earlier. <laughs> you know, I loved comics. The first comic I really loved was Countdown, which featured... John Pertwee's Doctor Who comic strip. And it was beautifully drawn either by Harry Lindfield or Jerry Haylock. These were great illustrators of that time. Jerry Haylock also illustrated Land of the Giants for a Joe 90 comic, which I also loved. And just the quality of illustration in those British weeklies was so high that you couldn't not buy those comics. Most people my age remember. Countdown, which became TV action, and also Lookin', because the great artists were working on those books. 2000 AD didn't yeah. come out till 1977. Countdown and Lookin' were 1971. So if you were looking for good comic strips, that's where you could find them. Then 2080 sort of blew the doors open and just re reinv- right. It was the punk rock movement mm. in comics, 2000 AD. It just, just made everything else look ridiculous. It was the it was artists like Brian Bolland, Kevin O'Neill, Dave Gibbons, Ian Gibson, Mick McMahon who had been exposed to French comics, American comics, British comics, and sort of fused it all together, whether it was in Judge Dredd or Strontium Dog or Robo Hunter or Robusters. You know, it was just, it's hard to explain. It, it was kind of like what Stanley, Jack Kirby, and Steve Ditko did to American comics in 1962. Mm-hmm. In 1977, John Wagner, Pat Mills, Dave Gibbons, Brian Ball, and Mick McMahon did the same for us. It was like, whoa, we've never seen comics like this. This is, this is what, what I want to read. I started reading Star-Lord, which merged into 2000 AD, but it was, again, I just I couldn't believe the quality of the work and that there were six pages, not two. And mm-hmm. Look In and Countdown, it's two or three pages. Then suddenly, 2000 AD has six pages of Judge Dredd or six pages of Strontium Dog by Carlos Ascara, who also co-created Dread. I think without 2000 AD, without Warrior, I might not have really had this sort of burning desire to get to work in comics. But I say that, but I was reading Marvel Comics, you know, when I was eight or nine, because my brother had a collection of 7,000 American comics, you know, wow. which, which in the 70s, to have 7,000, that was a big thing. I mean, it's still a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
2: So uh, I want to talk about Time and Tide. That's the first one you, you wrote. Probably, yes, yeah. <laughs> also, uh, Fun fact, it was the most recent comic that was released when I was born, so I don't know if that oh, makes when you were born? Old. Yeah. <laughs> I, was born I, doubt
1: Ma- we, I doubt whether you read it when it was published then. No. Was Mar-
2: I was born March 1989. 1989, that, that wow. yeah. Well, that
1: was my last year at Marvel UK, too. Yeah, that, that... Dougie Braithwaite wanted to draw Doctor Who. Dougie, who actually I'm working with right now on Conan the Barbarian, was just a great artist who was very young he was still a teenager when he drew that one uh he was 15 when he did his first work from he was 17 when he drew that Doctor Who strip. whoa and he draws like a professional these days you know he was he, he's as good then as he is now he probably would say different. But. <laughs> i thought the art was amazing in that yeah one.
2: very comedic too
1: yeah dougie's got a great sense of humor he did a we did a ghostbusters that was called ghost Wrapping, and mm. it was a rap and if you can find that online, it, it's still funny today. We did a whole, we did it all in rhyme, and you know, no sleep, we're busting. It was, uh, yeah, I got to find that. Yeah, so so I think I wrote it for Dougie, and I wrote it with John Carnell, who was the writer on the Sleeves Brothers. It's it's interesting. In those days, I didn't have the courage to write write it all myself. I think I had John come in to the office on a Saturday. I often work through the weekend and we just sat and you know made it up who came up with the initial concept was it you or him i have no idea (laughs) um
2: A literal lifetime ago for
1: me. Yeah, (laughs) it's it's entirely your lifetime ago, so I don't feel bad for not really remembering. I, you know, Joe,
0: which parts of Road Trippy did you write? You don't know.
1: (laughs) Well, when you're working together, you can often forget because you know you're having a conversation, writing it up in real time. You know, so if I wrote it up, and I probably did, I probably typed it up because I was a fast typist at that time. You know, that sort of process of it coming in my ear and going onto the page might make me think I did most of the work. But, <laughs> uh, you know, often the person doing the talking is doing most of the work. And you're, you know, as an editor, when you're working with someone and you're typing it up, you're sort of editing it as it goes into your ear. I just can't remember. And I know I probably came up with the idea, it was on it was set on a water planet that was drowning or something, you know, and the creatures there were becoming amphibious or were, yeah. Just can't remember. <laughs> what was it you were saying about it?
0: About
1: The Warrior. Oh the Warrior, that's right. Yeah. He oh, was the sort of mentor on the planet.
0: Yeah. I just was taking it personally. <laughs> As someone I'm, who worries I'm you. the warrior. You a warrior, <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. I'm a warrior too, so <laughs> that probably came from me. No, that's that came from John. I think I said he's the wor- oh you know it. <laughs> who knows? Who knows? <laughs> who knows? <laughs> yeah.
0: No, but Joe is getting on to me about worrying and he's like we just read we just read this comic and I was like yeah but uh he's the only one who lives so Yeah, that's it's true. Fine. Yeah,
1: yeah. Sometimes <laughs> you have to worry about yeah. things. Yeah. You, know? <laughs> you know, I've been watching Naked and Afraid on uh, on Max, you know, that show where they drop a naked woman and naked man into like the african desert and they have to survive and work together usually there's a type a macho guy who's like i'm gonna dominate mother nature (laughs) and then there's a hippie girl who's going maybe maybe that's not the right approach maybe we should be considerate you know and i think that that's the warrior aspect of you know and often the macho guys you know break their knees, you know, (laughs) cut themselves, hacking down bamboo. So, yeah, a more cautious approach. is uh...
0: There's this idea in kind of post-apocalyptic storytelling, but also like prepping. I don't know if you're familiar with prepping at all. Okay, so it's there are people who do just like prepare for apocalypse situations. I don't mean in like fiction. I mean... Survivalists. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: Doomsday preppers. Doomsday
0: preppers who like hoard stuff. But then there are also people who so because I find it very interesting. I, I've read a lot of like prepping blogs. But there's this idea of like the people who like hoard like guns and ammo and stuff aren't going to have anything on the people who know how to make yeah. soap and farm and yeah, and
1: a lot of those naked and afraid people who are soldiers without their backpacks, without their team, you know, with a unit, without a gun, they fall to pieces because they don't know how to dig a well and get water out of the ground they don't know how to eat um, vegetation yeah. you know and there's another show Alone which we're also watching on Hulu where a lot of the women that sign up for those are just constantly eating greens and the men are like I wish I catch a fish or kill <laughs> oh, a pig and it's like you're surrounded by nutrients. Actually, if you know just the them.
0: smallest amount about foraging, yeah. you're probably in better yeah. shape. Yeah, yeah
1: foraging is, is a good way to go. But um, no, I, I kind of, in these days in which we live, I do think I do not know enough <laughs> about surviving. But actually, that's one of the problems I had with uh, Walking Dead, both the comic and the show. They don't do any prepping. They don't do any real surviving mm-hmm. it's driven by how many zombies are you are going to shoot in the head this episode and when Robert was about 30 or 40 issues in I said have you seen the TV show Survivors and he said oh you're not the first person to mention that it's like because in Survivors it's a very similar scenario it's a post-apocalyptic you know it's a it's a pandemic but what is great about that show which was created by Terry Nation second episode of the first Dalek story is called The Survivors Oh, you know so because the Thals were the survivors Mm -hmm. you know so The Survivors didn't just show you the pandemic It's like, well, how do we survive? How do we make a candle? Yeah. You know, how do we burn fuel so we can keep, okay, we've moved into these houses. How do we keep them warm? How do we farm? How do we trade? Who do we trust? And I think Walking Dead missed out on that. Aspect of it, and actually, I was talking about this to someone yesterday. they said, "Yeah, and look at all those manicured lawns." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ten years into the zombie apocalypse, and, and and you see all these beautifully manicured lawns. Who's mowing the lawns? The
2: zombies, <laughs> or even just the people are like, just you know, their hair is really nice. Yeah, makeup on. Yeah, not enough dirt in their faces. Just watch Naked and Afraid, day fifteen. <laughs> they're filthy. <laughs> I know. I when I watch like post apocalyptic things, like I know specifically with Zombieland, I was like, every place they go to has, has electricity. Power. That's yeah. not going to happen if the whole world's been yeah. messed up. I mean,
0: that's. But we are entertained. Is-
1: we are entertained. <laughs> yes.
0: I think about this a lot because I do. Th- I think my like pandemic hobby was like. Oh no! If everything really does go to shit, what do we do? <laughs> That's when I like got into like survivalist, like reading survivalist blogs and stuff like that, and seeing what other people do. And there was there was kind of this like divergent ideology. There was like a group of people who's like, it's gonna be community. Yeah, like you can't mm-hmm. learn everything. You you might not know how to make a candle, but you find the person who always, does.
1: There will always be a loner. There's always a lone wolf. There's always that <laughs> character even in a, a real situation. Yeah, you know, absolutely. But community, you know, people will go actually start talking to each other again and learning from each other, which you know is, is our basic default. Back to Doctor Who. <laughs> <Yes. a second.
0: laughs> I, I yeah. I took us wildly off uh, course.
1: So the new
2: specials, the 60th specials, there was the, the Star Beast, which is based on a comic. Yep. So I was wondering, of the Doctor Who comics you've worked on, which one would you most like to see turn into an Nemesis episode? Nemesis
1: of the Daleks. In fact, so they, they did put <laughs> a shot of Absalom Dark in Time Heist. There's a screen where it runs through a bunch of criminals and the shot of Absalom Dark is actually a, a drawing by Lee Sullivan who illustrated the story Nemesis of the Daleks. When I was reading Doctor Who Weekly back in the day and they had this backup featuring Absalom Dark I was like this is a great character somebody who hates the Daleks because well he's He's basically a criminal, a murderer, a yeah. rapist, who is given the choice of death or D.K., and D.K. is Dalek killer. So he chooses D.K., and That's then he falls in love with a princess and the Dalek's killer, and then he wants revenge on the Daleks. And then they did a group called Star Tigers, which I was never fully on board with, because I thought he was a great loner character. So in Nemesis of the Daleks, we killed the other ones. then Paul Cornell brought them back which happens sometimes that's that's the truth but there was actually a character I think in one of the Dalek serials for the 6th Doctor or 7th Doctor called Orsini and he had a ponytail and I thought oh this is Absalom Dark in TV form but now that they've done the Star Beast I don't see why they couldn't do Absalom Dark you know Mm and he's not my character I didn't create him Steve Moore and Steve Dillon created him and Steve Dillon of course went on to much greater things but he everything Steve touched turned to gold because he just had such incredible talent you know he, he really drew characters that looked real and expressed emotions he was a natural he did Preacher with Garth Ennis and he did a run on Punisher with Garth Ennis brilliant artist lovely lovely man too you know gone too soon he was only 53 but um, I thought Absalom Dark was a great character and when he popped up in Time Heist I was like doors open <laughs> you know? and then when they did Starbeast it's like well it's just a matter of time yeah, yeah. you know and, and Nemesis of the Daleks I always thought was a great title mm-hmm. and I came up with that I think before Silver Nemesis you know wow. And then I thought, oh, now they've used it for the Cybermen. Well, yeah.
0: And if we know one thing about Doctor Who, they've never had titles that sound at all similar.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, I actually had a rule when I was editing the comic strip that it had to be the something of something. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. So Claws of the Clothy, Nemesis of the Daleks, Echoes of the Mogor, Time and Tide was broke the rule. Of course, the one you I, wrote. <laughs> I'm allowed to break my own rule yeah but I also wrote nemesis of the Daleks, so yeah. but Nemesis of the Daleks was to me a great sort of it, it was sort of based on Star Wars in that the great the Dalek space station is blown mm-hmm. up at the end and that, and in in my story, Absalom Dark dies at the yeah. end of that that and then of course Paul brought him back how but dare uh yeah, how dare he? It's a shame that so many post-Genesis stories revolve around Davros. You know, the solution to that is a character like Absalom Dark, where you're so into his desire for revenge on the Daleks that that he propels the plot. You know, and the and the doctor becomes you know a passenger in that story, and that's the thing that I liked about not having a companion is it allowed the doctor to be in a, a passenger in somebody else's story, whereas the Russell T Davis approach is that the Doctor's a passenger in a companion story you know I mean what's the what's the title of the first Russell T. Davis episode mm-hmm. Rose you know what's the title of the first Judy Gatway episode Church on Ruby right, Road yeah. Yeah. you know he nails his colours he's very upfront always about what the story is about it's in the title you know even you know partners in crime Doctor and Donna Smith and Jones Smith Smith and Jones Uh, so he's he's very much this is a show about the Doctor and whereas Moffat is like Oh, we're just going to kill all the companions. Over and over and over again. Very different. I remember when I was at San Diego, the year Moffat took over, and there was a Doctor Who panel in Hall H, back in the days when you could get in Hall H, and um, Moffat said, you know, I know a lot of you out there are worried that my approach to Doctor Who is going to be dark. <laughs> Tough. <laughs> and it was. I mean, if you yeah. think about it, you know, that whole sequence in the giggle where the toy maker says, Poor little Amy Pond, yeah. you know, and poor little Clara, she's killed by a bird. <laughs> that to me was Rosalie Davis saying, Look what happened when I was away. <laughs> Moffat killed all the companions. You know, Danny Pink wasn't in there, but he was practically a companion. He died. Mm. That's right. He was ruthless. You know, what's with all the Cybermen finales? There are other
2: (laughs) villains available. I feel that way about the Daleks sometimes, too. I do sometimes.
1: I think they're contractually obliged to use the Daleks once a season. Um, I should ask my friend Sue, who works for the Terry Nation Estate, because there isn't a season without Daleks. That is just Mm. a
0: fascinating rights issue. I think when they (laughs) were
1: negotiating, that was part of the negotiations when we were going to get the Toclophane instead of the Daleks in season one I think it was probably well we want the Daleks to appear in every season they probably said every episode (laughs) that
0: was probably the first ask Yeah, yeah.
1: but that's why you know Absalom Dark would be a great addition because he is the nemesis of the Daleks you know Mm -hmm. making the Doctor the one that's angry at the Daleks every time gets boring Right. that's
2: also interesting uh how did uh, was it what's it called up above the gods happen because that's another one where
1: uh, I should have dreamt that so I was I was living in Los Angeles I think I had read emperor of the Daleks which was Paul's story I just went to bed one night and I was like well we're missing a bit of the story here how did the doctor convince the davros to get involved so I was like well this could be a uh I am impressed that you've Found that one. <laughs> uh, this could be, do my research. Yeah, this could be a story in the TARDIS. So actually I called Lee Sullivan and said, If I write this, will you draw it? Because I didn't want some random artist drawing it. I wanted mm. another fan and Lee mm. I, I've said this before, if if I'd stayed in London at Marvel UK, I would have just hired Lee to draw Every episode. So I would have changed my policy because Lee was a fan, Lee could draw likenesses, Lee loved Doctor Who, Lee understood all my references to old TV 21 comics, which we definitely tapped into on Nemesis of the Daleks. And he was just, he's just a lovely, lovely human being. Then I left, and (laughs) I don't think he. He, I think he got to draw Emperor and Mark of Mandragora. He did some other ones, but not as the regular artist. He is the regular artist now. After oh. 30 years, he drew Liberation of the Daleks. So with uh, Up Above the Gods, I always thought it would be interesting to see Davros's origin, you know, mm. where he's blown up and his legs are, you know, his arms and legs are blown off. And actually, I have that page where Colin Baker's doctor is, is whispering into... Davros's ear it says beautifully drawn yeah and again that was it when when you can write for an artist you know what you're going to get and also I was friends with Gary Russell who was the editor and was a big comic strip fan so I pitched it to him it's funny because I think he wrote back and said well this doesn't feel like something that would be on the show and I was like yeah but it's the comic strip and you're always saying how the comic strip isn't taken seriously so why can't we do this and then he was like okay fine um, I think it's really good it's very yeah. I didn't expect you know I didn't I, I, I wasn't chomping at the bit to write the comic strip I just went to bed with an idea woke up called Lee wrote it up and it was done
0: Joe and I sat down and read all these together And we read that one, and he's like, "We're not reading what comes after that." And I was like, "What?" I was mad. I was like, "You need to go find the rest of it." And I I think they
1: reprinted it with Emperor of the Daleks because it is a sort of prologue to Emperor of the Daleks, or it happens Mm -hmm. in between episodes or something. I can't remember. I just remember they brought back Absalom Dark, and actually, I think Paul said, "Oh, yes." It seemed to me like you changed some of my story, and I was like, "I mean, you mean like bringing back characters I killed in my story?" You went, oh, good point. <laughs> so he's a very gentlemanly guy. I think we've talked pretty much
2: about the entirety of your comic strip run, but what about uh, Cold-Blooded War? How did that come about?
1: Uh, Gary couldn't meet the deadline. <laughs> <laughs> I know! Had already plotted it. I don't think he'd fully plotted it. He'd done eight pages, I think, and he had a bare outline for the story. The funny thing is, is that so I had to finish the script from his thin outline i know i think gary sends everything he does to his mum and his mum called him and said oh i read that cold-blooded war that you sent me and i understood that one and he said oh you understood the one i didn't write (laughs) (laughs) um he'll correct me on that if i'm wrong but i'm pretty certain that's what he told me you know and it was nice to write the doctrine donna it's very you know i was a bit nervous about doing it because once you write your own characters you, you're like, well, oh, I have to get voice, these characters' yeah, voice, voices right. Yeah. Oh my gosh, the Doctor and Donna are so easy to write. They, you know, if you've watched it enough, and I have watched every New Who episode at least five or six times. If this you've watched it enough, agree. it's very easy to hear. I think I added that, you know, little Doctor and Donna sort of interaction at the end that was a little bit more. The stick. But yeah, yeah. yeah. If you want to talk. Thank I think, you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Did you slip in the uh, second Doctor reference
2: with Donna Sanger, oh, my, getting aunt? Yes nice. Yeah, I, th- I, I think so.
1: I mean, again, how long ago is that? That's 10th yeah. Doctor, it's at least 15 years ago. It's been um,
0: very bizarre having 14 and just being like, I'm watching Donna and <laughs> the,
1: the, the Doctor. There is, there is a part of me, I mean, I've really enjoyed the specials, but there is a part of me where I feel like Russell T. Davis is just forcing back the clock. Yeah. <laughs> and even, I was watching Starbeast yesterday, I was thinking, you know, when Donna said, I don't want to forget you, I don't, you know, when the Tenth Doctor forces Donna to forget, I was always like, is is that Russell who wants, who's being forced to forget, like he doesn't want to leave Doctor Who, really? He doesn't want to go. He doesn't want to go, you know, and I think there was an element of that, and I think all the showrunners i think stephen moffat found it very hard to leave because you know he nearly left twice yeah Best you know story, and then he came good. back and wrote another season. It's like no you didn't you didn't have to <laughs> you wanted to but i can imagine that you know and all writers are gods of their own worlds even if that world is somebody else's it's You know, it's this thing about ownership. You have to take ownership, you know. And I think Mm. Russell T. Davis has to come back and say, "I need to find my way in," and the way I'll find my way in is I'll finish the story with the Doctor and Donna. Yeah. And I think Moffat did the same thing. I mean, Moffat rebooted the show. He started with a blank slate. He did not have. He did not inherit a companion. And he did. He did pretty much the same when Peter Capaldi came on board, except he did have Clara. But you don't really think of Clara as. Matt Smith's companion. Really? Really? No, yeah. You know, I know. I always say that you know you have to be arrogant to be a writer because you're telling people what the rules of the world are. Mm-hmm. So you need a writer like Stephen Moffat to come in and say, it's going to be dark, a tough <laughs> luck, you know, Chris Chibnall comes in, it's going to be slow, a tough <laughs> luck, you know. And yeah. I'm a big fan of what Chris Chibnall did because I like variety. I think mm-hmm. every new episode of Doctor Who is like a Christmas present. You know, I'm not going to complain about how many Christmas presents I get. <laughs> Fair enough. You're a little more generous to Chibnall than I am. But. Well, you know, I like the timeless child storyline, and I think Russell probably did too, because even in sort of doing this whole by generation thing, making something fresh mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. is the hardest task of all. And I was a bit worried that Tennant and uh, Tate would be feel like. Warmed leftovers. Right. It didn't, you know, because the bigger budget, you know, and and it was worth it for the Wild Blue Yonder, which I think is one of the oh best God, episodes that is so so great.
0: Have you seen the Unleashed episodes? Yeah, yeah. The first special when it came out, and there's a bit where um, Russell's talking about. He's, that's what he's saying. Like, it's always important to be doing something new. And I was like, man, it is absolutely bold to be like, we're going back to what we did before, and that's never been done before. Incredible. But even, but
1: you know, I liked that Donna knew because yeah, she yeah. was the Doctor Donna. She knew. She shared a, a sort of understanding of what the Doctor had been through. And in *Wild Blue Yonder*, when he talks about the flux, it was adding to that sort of weight. Uh, you know, let's remember the Time Lord Victorious that, you know, the doctor was getting too full of himself. Yeah. Mm. You know, I think this was sort of an extension of that and you know, needs a good slap.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, <laughs> I love you, get out. That was one of my favourite lines when ChuTy, <laughs> you know, just says, I'm I'm done with you now. Yeah. I'm yeah. the doctor, get out of here. It
0: does feel like a like a palate cleanser between yeah. eras. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. what's going to be completely. Yeah, and of course the,
1: the ChuT season is season one. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think when Russell T. Davis reviews this you know on some blu-ray extra at the end of his next four years he'll probably say I just I needed to reboot it again yeah and it did need rebooting because sometimes I was like wow this is new who and it's weighed down by its own continuity yeah, yeah. because it is older than Doctor Who was when the three doctors came out and when The Three Doctors came out, I just thought Doctor Who was ancient. <laughs> but that was only the 10th anniversary. Was
2: that an anniversary special
1: during your run, the one with all the doctors in it? The oh, the seven doctors. Mm. Yeah. Was that an anniversary? Mm-hmm. Maybe it was 25. Mm. Maybe it was around that time. No, that would have been... Yeah, it's probably the 25th. Yeah, I don't remember. But you got to remember they weren't really the doctors. They were metamorphs. Yeah, that's true. yeah, yeah. yeah. But I just wanted Lee... To get the opportunity to roll them all,
2: that shot where they're all lined up, yeah, love that. Shot. Was good. Yeah, yeah, it's very good. Yeah. Just want to mention that because I really like it. They just they look like them. So sometimes yeah, that's hard to do.
1: He, yeah, and actually the key was that Lee was a big fan of the comic strips. And he knew, find the artist that figured out how many <laughs> lines you need to draw John Pertwee's face or you know Pat Troughton's face. So, so he referenced the artist that got it right mm-hmm. in order to get it right because that was a lot of work for him. Okay. But he loved right, it. He loved
2: good. it. Me too. Uh, so uh, why did you leave Dr. Hill?
1: Uh, because uh, I chased a girl to America. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <Yeah>. That happens. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there was an American girl who's working in reception at Marvel. She went back to California. I've realized now that I'm the age I am, every five years I need to be doing something different. You need and a reboot. I've been, I've been <laughs> at Marvel for five years. I've been so... I should sort have of realized I'd done everything I wanted to do. I had launched comics aimed at the American market. That's Dragon's Claws, Death's Head, and Sleeze Brothers. Sleeze Brothers was even an epic comic. And I was like, well, what more can I do? You know, they'd struggled to get books into the American market for years. And in my third, fourth year, I'd, I'd done it. So I moved to New York, did a lot of lettering for Marvel US, hated it. Because I was sort of in between, moved to California, broke up with the girl that I'd chased out there. And then I was like, okay, what am I going to do? You know, so I worked at Graffiti Designs, which was a merchandise company based in Anaheim. I uh, worked there for a couple of years and learned how to use the Mac back in the day when Macs were tiny. <laughs> 12-inch screens, you know. And that sort of opened the door. For me to pioneer digital comic book lettering, which I did throughout the '90s, and you know, I continued to work for Marvel until other letterers figured out how to do computer lettering. You know, <laughs> but my studio's been going over 30 years now. But I never wanted to be just a comic book letterer. I would, I, I like making comics, right. I don't care what I'm doing. Increasingly, I do. (laughs) Um, I want complete control, Mm. which makes me very difficult to work with sometimes. But, you know, I've I've had the joy of working with top creators in comics. You know, I've worked with Brian Bolland. I've worked with Tim Sale. I've worked with Mike Mignola. I've worked, you know, just a who's who of people who work in mainstream comics. But what I really want to do was make my own comics so ultimately you know the 90s were just me finding a way of creating an income stream whereby i could make my own comics was hip flask the first one flask yes um i did a comic strip called hedge backwards which was sort of sort of a gag strip it was sort of about me moving to california and it was published in the El Segundo Herald, and then in a Buddhist newspaper called the World Tribune at the beginning of the 90s. And then Comic Craft just sort of stopped me drawing. I became human resources for my own company. You know, once you've got, I had 15, 16 people working for me at one point. That took a lot of the pleasure out of it because I was basically in charge i loved working at marvel because somebody else was in charge and we were mischief you know we were like let's do a crossover between doctor and thundercats uh, you know uh so you have you you're able to sort of bottle that mischiefness and get away with it at somebody else's expense and
2: how to do, do when it's your own expense
1: when it's your own expense when people are working for you And you're the one with the vision and you're the one that people complain about uh, because you make people work long hours and make them do things again. It's tough. You know, anybody that has high standards knows how hard it is to get other people to reach those high standards. Mm. I'm very, very lucky in that I worked with John Rochelle, who came to me out of UCLA as a design graduate. And he and I worked together we still work together he now handles the font side of our business and has his own font business i concentrate on making comics and continuing with comic craft he and i work have worked together over 30 years and we've we've never had a fight we've never you know he had high standards and he wanted to meet high standards and it's rare to find someone that you're simpatico with I've been very lucky to work with Tim Sale, who became one of my best friends, you know. And I lettered everything he drew in the last 25 years of his life, you know, and it didn't really hit me that that was the case until he passed away. So it's great when you're able to work with people that you see eye to eye with, but creative people aren't known <laughs> for seeing eye to eye with each other all the time. Mm -hmm. so yes hip flash was the first and hip flask is elephant man it's the same world i actually changed the name because people would say hip flash (laughs) what's hip flash Well, well it's hip flask and it's his name well okay the second issue of hip flask was called elephant men and bob harris called me and said that's it elephant men that's the name of your book and i was like oh Okay. And he was right, because nobody asked. They say, why is the lead character a hippo? And then I have that conversation. Well, elephant man is a derogatory term for all the human-animal hybrids. Mm-hmm. So once you've got people in, you know, if they can't say it, it's amazing how it chases people away. But the other thing is, people love elephants. <laughs> and they're sort of magnetized to the image of an elephant.
0: Man, that's not wrong.
1: <laughs> you know, well, because elephants have very human-looking eyes, you mm-hmm. know, uh, they have long lashes, they have all those sort of crinkly character lines, and there's something gentle about the way they move when they're not charging you. Um, <laughs> just using the word "elephant man," and, and the Elephant Man is one of my favourite movies. And yes, John Hurt is my favourite doctor. <laughs> um, but um, good choice. I was going to ask that question. Yeah, it's know uh, it. you know, it's true. I just, I just think that in one episode he was the most Doctorish Doctor of all, you know. Well, he's kind of like symbolizing the he entire run of Classic, classic who. who, yeah. Yeah. Not just Classic Who; he symbolizes New Who, which is that angst, that sort of weighty, you know, when he's carrying the moment. In yeah. a bag, you know that's all Doctor Who continuity for fifty years, <laughs> right? You know when he says Time Lords, of Gallifrey, Daleks, Scarrow, you know it's just he just gets he has a gravitas. But I was a big fan of him, you know. He's, he's in so many of my favorite films: Alien, The Elephant Man.
2: I immediately think of Hellboy. Hellboy,
1: yeah, a- absolutely. And he's mm. great in Hellboy.
2: I think he added like a lot of
1: depth to that yes, character that maybe he did. wasn't necessarily yeah. even yeah. in the comics. So. Yeah. And we won't mention Crystal Skull But I guess I just did But he's in that one too He's in a lot of great genre films
0: I just want to know uh, what you're reading right now
1: uh, I'm reading Billy Summers By Stephen King
0: Ooh.
1: Nice. Which is a crime story I, I used to read a lot of Stephen King
0: Joe's making his way through it in order
1: Uh, Stephen King I I think that's smart because part of me wants to go back and read the ones I've missed I think I gave up around Tommy Knockers which I really liked actually no I gave up halfway through It it was just too long Um, (laughs) and I I think I needed to read something else but I'm really enjoying Billy Summers. I actually got halfway through The Outsider and then watched the TV show and thought, well, the TV show wasn't very good. I don't need to finish the book. <laughs> but probably the book was better because a lot of there's very few Stephen King adaptations that are as good as you know. The exceptions being Green Mile, is a brilliant film. Shawshank. Uh, Shawshank uh, is brilliant. Dead Zone is mm-hmm. brilliant. Even the Dead Zone TV show was pretty good. I like the, the Misery. Gerald's Game, didn't they? Misery. Gerald's Game was good. The Tommy Knocker's TV show is okay, but um, he's just written too many books. <laughs> it's hard to keep up, you it know, is. and there's other things I want to read. And comics, I'm reading Petrolhead by Rob Williams and Pai pa, who are 2000 AD alumni. It's an image comic. Incredible artwork. If you've not looked at Petrolhead, please do. I mean, I read a lot, and I'm constantly reading. I try to read a comic a day. I read anything Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips do i read fires of pompeii the novelization that came out i usually just put them on the shelf i i read all the target books when they came out until the very last target novelization came out i I read i read the douglas adams ones
0: Mm.
1: Um, the rose one's pretty good if if it's the writer Mm -hmm. of the show i will read it Mm. so fires of pompeii check that box because it's it's Uh, adapted by James Moran. There's extra bits in that. It's worth reading, actually, just for the chapter titles. (laughs) I'll say no more. And I've got Planet of the Ood and Waters of Mars lined up uh, because those are written by the authors of the serials. Also, not serials, episodes. (laughs) And they're easy reads. They're such light reads. But uh, I also read... Paul Theroux who's the father of Louis Theroux, documentarian, mm. British documentarian who's become very popular. He did a movie on Netflix called My Scientology Movie which sort of lifts the lid on Scientology, but he's a very well-known documentarian in England and his father is a writer. He wrote Mosquito Coast, mm. uh, Half Moon Street, but he writes a lot of travel books. And I've been reading his travel books because I can sort of hear the same voice as his son. And I also read Louis's brother is a novelist. Uh, his name is it Marcel through. I can't remember, but he wrote a, a science fiction book about it's got some crossover with elephant men because it's sort of putting your consciousness in another body. Excellent book so you know I, I, I'm I'm definitely a reader that sort of sort of follows like okay I like Louis I'll read <laughs> his dad and then I've read a lot of his dad's work uh, I'm also reading Hunter Davis who was the journalist who wrote the only official biography of the Beatles and he was a favourite writer of mine in Punch in the Sunday Times which you may not know what Punch is it's kind of like New Yorker and he wrote a book called Life in the Day about his life which is very very interesting and I just bought his biography of the Beatles, so that's in my to-read pile.
2: I have a huge to-read
1: pile. There's <sighs> too much to read. There's too much to watch. There's too much to read. We actually realised last night we hadn't watched the last episode of Loki because we <laughs> went to England All right. after episode five and just forgot. Because <laughs> then there's a... What we were watching Vigil, which is a, a British drama. The second series started. We watching The Crown. You know, that came back on. Doctor Who came on. We're big fans of Strictly Come Dancing, which we watch after Doctor Who. (laughs) Uh, There's so much to watch. And some of it's good. You know, I haven't got to see Godzilla Minus One yet. Me either. We were going to see it with Andy yesterday, but he got sick.
2: Um, Okay, I have one one more question, and then we're going to take a quick break, and then I'm going to tell you a story. But uh, my question is, what's your favorite font? Ah, that's your question. I saw it.
0: I was... I felt bad that your dad wasn't going to be here because I was like, Brad is the kind of person who's like, we're, we're driving and he'll just point to science and he'll tell you what fonts things are. I, I, I used to be able to do that. You. I'm
1: very glad to tell you I got over it.
0: <laughs> um, There's hope. There's my, hope for your dad. My favorite
1: font <laughs> out there in the world is probably antique olive. I'm also fond of Verdana, which is in most Macs. Um, but in terms one. of... Uh, fonts that I've worked on or created, you know, Zoinks which um, we created as the font to replace the Ren and Stimpy font because <laughs> the, the Ren and Stimpy font was very freely available in the 90s and it was everywhere. Mm. And I'm glad to say that Zoinks is now everywhere. <laughs> um, you know, it's a, it's a strange question because I sort of wish the word font wasn't out there because to me it's lettering Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it's elastic and it's manipulable. You know, most people load a font and they use it. I like to change it and stretch it and in Illustrator make it something else in the same way that, you know, I can only draw lettering in a certain way, Mm -hmm. but I can then make it fit what I'm working on. I often correct people when they refer to Lettering in comics in the sixties and seventies, and they say that's a nice font. It's like it's not a font. <laughs> it's lettering yeah. because it's hand drawn. I think often the font that I'm working on, I, I'm doing titles for Conan right now in the style of Joe Rosen, who who lettered a lot of Conan in the seventies, and I'm I, I enjoy looking at his work across all his Marvel comics because he lettered Thor, he lettered every major title out there. And seeing how he worked, by, by, by trying to imitate somebody's style, you learn something about the way they work. that You can then only process through your own creativity. I look at lettering in a very different way. And ironically, I feel like all this work I've done over the last 30, 40 years, I'm now trying to work like somebody in the 60s. You know, <laughs> which is like, oh, they had it right. It was so much simpler. <laughs> you know.
2: All right, so we're going to take a quick break. Let's and do it. Then... We'll be back with some more stuff. All right, monkeying around. Start talking.
1: China Mr. Babalina, Mr. Babalina, Mr. Mr. about your podcast.
0: We talk about an Emmy-winning comedy series. We talk about a band who outsold the Beatles and the Stones in 1967.
1: Still sticking to that story, huh? Well, if you know what's good for you, you'll change your tune.
0: We talk about a groundbreaking multimedia project that inspired generations of artists and fans.
1: All right, throw the book at them. This book is overdue.
0: Monkeying Around, a podcast about the monkeys.
2: And we're back. So, we are recording this not where we normally record, which is our home. We're recording at Infinity Plus, which is where I met you. That's right. Uh, it's the comic book store I work at. Before I worked here there was a comics co-op and that's where I saw you for the first time. Alright. And uh, I actually got a present from you for Christmas. I got Ghost World. That's right. Yeah. I thought it'd be funny if you'd sign it. You didn't mark on that, did you? No. I think it'd be hilarious if you signed it. I, um, could, I could say for Joe yeah.
1: <laughs> that's one of the last events we had
2: yeah, yeah. Then yeah. 2020
1: yeah. happened
2: yeah. so I knew you were you worked on comics and stuff like that I had no idea you worked on Doctor Who until uh, I was watching like a special feature on the 7th Doctor uh, Blu-ray where, the, where they skimmed over my time on,
1: on that <laughs> but trip.
2: someone did mention you by name and I was like it may have been yeah. yeah I was like is that the same person <laughs> I know <laughs> And then I looked you up and I was like, oh, wow, you've worked on a lot of Doctor Who. Yeah,
1: I was was really pissed off when I saw that extra because they made no (laughs) efforts to interview me. Maybe today they would because of Zoom. Mm. But uh, everyone sort of uh, seemed to refer to my period. And I I, I don't think I was very popular amongst Doctor Who fans for doing crossovers with Death's Head and the Sleeves Brothers. But as Russell T. (laughs) Davis recently said... If fans don't like it, that's exactly what you should do.
2: Yeah. Uh, (laughs) I'm just going to take parts of this podcast and edit it into that
1: (laughs) (laughs) little
2: video. The other thing I want to talk about, my dad would also come to... I thought you were
1: going to ask me about this beautiful logo I designed. You should ask about the logo. Talk about the logo while I get this
2: other thing pulled up. Well,
1: you know, the history of that is that when I first saw the store sign, I thought it was a sunglasses hut because it has this little infinity sign in the logo. And I thought, oh, that's not a comic shop. That looks like a sunglasses hut. And I was just driving past. This is when we were looking for houses in Chattanooga. So ever since then... I've been trying to convince Jason and Megan to create a new logo, which finally they allowed me to do. <laughs> it's great. I love, um, I love it because it's all my favorite colors. <laughs> so this, this is what's called taxi yellow. It has a little bit of red in it. It's not orange. It's taxi yellow, which works so brilliantly with blue. Do you recognize the style of the lettering? It looks familiar. Fantastic Four logo. So oh, it's yeah. it's loosely based on the lettering from the Fantastic Four logo, which I think is one of the most fun Marvel logos.
0: It is very close the colors. It's very close to the branding for the place that I work for now.
1: Well, there's so only so good. many places you can go with complementary colors. Yeah. You know, <laughs> the, the color wheel is not hundreds of colors. <laughs> you know, and... For something to be legible, you know, I like to use white. People forget that white is a color. You know, it's actually all the colors. Is it all the colors? Is it the absence of colors? It's all the colors. Because when you spin, you spin the color it. wheel, <laughs> it goes white, right? When you, when yeah. you put, spin a color wheel, it goes white. The eye sees white. And white allows you to read a logo. You know, if you put something against a white field, the black and the yellow can work really well.
2: Yeah, there's, I feel like there's a, that's a big problem with some designs I've seen is, they don't make the lettering pop out yeah. it's hard to read. It Knees, muddy. pop.
1: That was something I was taught at Marvel UK, which is, does it pop? That Funko Pop logo pops. <laughs> pop, and what's it in? It's in a balloon. That's true. Um, so, also at these comic co-ops,
2: my father would come with me because he's he's a comic book artist. He wanted me to let you know, uh, he had some heart troubles recently, and uh, he had to go back in to get a heart catheter thing done during the pandemic during the pandemic which meant he couldn't my mother couldn't go back with him and he just wanted to let you know that this was his comfort ah, ah, reading material elephant yeah. Men. yeah that was what accompanied him to the hospital oh, Elephant man so
1: yeah actually one of the best compliments i was paid recently was tom king who's writing batman catwoman a book called everlasting love he's 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 been the sort of hot writer at dc for a few years we were at san diego and we were walking over to the comiXology event and he said i just want to tell you when i was in afghanistan i had two volumes of elephant man with me and i read them over and over again and nice. it really helped me get through that and i was like oh can you write that down so i can put that on a cover of a volume which is not yet done but you know you, you never know how you might you know affect someone you know, with what you've written because you're always struggling to write the next thing. Mm -hmm. So it's always nice when something I wrote 15 years ago is being read today. I I always encourage people to read The Beef, which is one of my favorite things that I've written. And, And certainly Megan and Jason really got behind that when it was on sale. Here in the store, but um,
2: I haven't read that one yet. But I have read uh, the first volume of Ask for Mercy. Ask for Mercy. Mm-hmm. Did you
1: enjoy it? I did. It was very good. Yeah. Did you notice the Doctor Who overlaps? What's, what's the Doctor Who? Well, it's, overlaps. Time That's you know, it time it's time travel. That's true. It's time travel. Hard for me to get away from time travel. The <laughs> first hip flask story is a time travel story. And you got to remember I wrote that 25 years ago before all this crazy amount of TV that's based in time travel and multiverses. If I'd worked with a faster artist, I'd maybe be able to take credit <laughs> for some of it. But, <laughs> <laughs> but, multiverses yeah.
0: are having a moment right now. Mm-hmm.
1: I I'm hope it passes.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I feel you. Yeah. So before we go, uh, is there anything you want to plug?
1: Ask for Mercy and Elephant Men. You know, they're... The trade paperback collections of the Comixology Original Series came out this year. Volumes 2 come out next year. But actually follow me on Facebook because we're doing a lot of Kickstarters next year. There's going to be a book that I've put together in memory of Tim Sale with some work that he started and some friends of mine are finishing. But it's sort of a epilogue to the book I did with him called Tim Sale Black and White always available on Amazon or at your local comic book store Infinity Flux, <laughs> they will order it for you that's one of my favorite books that I've put together because that's when Tim and I really became friends you know I sat down with him and said people need to know your story because he started working late in his 20s in comics you know he was a late developer in terms of you know, he wasn't some punk-ass kid at 18 and started drawing <laughs> comics. He took his time and was very deliberate, and I really appreciate that about his career. The Beef, always available on Amazon or at your local comic store. Infinity Flux. <laughs> <laughs> Axel and I have finished two issues of Elephant Men since we finished with originals. One of them will be a Kickstarter. Another one is an epilogue to the Hip Flask story that I started in 2001, which... The artist Ladrone is finishing issue five. It's taken him 12 years. <laughs> um, but we'll be putting together a collection of that next year. And again, that will be a Kickstarter. There's a lot of work to come. I've also been curating my library on Comixology and Amazon Print on Demand. So there's mm-hmm. actually three new collections, not new material, some of it is new material. Because Axel, who's my regular artist at Elephant Men, has redrawn some early issues of Elephant Men, and we have packaged them differently to be in shorter trade paperback collections, and they're only available print-on-demand through Amazon. There's two Elephant Men 2239 collections. One is called War Toys, one is called Enemy Species, and there's a... Elephant Men 2259 collection called Man Made Monsters there'll be two more next year the beauty of print on demand is you can curate your library which I have complete control over Mm. and put them out in new editions with new covers and they've all got new covers by Ian Churchill who's a top comic book artist and a good friend of mine and I'm sort of enjoying my sort of retrospective career on Elephant Men by sort of adding and subtracting from the the canon is there a lot of subtracting only in that some issues didn't come out the way i wanted to and you know the beauty of being the creator of the work is that you don't have to wait for hollywood or netflix to revise (laughs) your work you can see its shortcomings and work on them you know mm-hmm. so there are storylines that i wish i'd foreshadowed
2: ah, okay. But,
1: and now i can if somebody comes across those collections on amazon then they don't know, you know? <laughs> that's true i mean yeah i don't know we could get into the whole george lucas special editions <laughs> which i was i was, I was fine with you mm-hmm. know i mean just for that shot of the Millennium falcon taking off in star wars remember you know that they didn't show it take off and they added this scene in and it's like oh my it's Millennium Falcon taking off. <laughs> it's worth it, you know. Star Wars is a whole other can of worms. I'll <laughs> we'll um, have to get Andy in here for that. But, one. <laughs> but you know, if you're the creator of the work, you have every right to revise it. You mm-hmm. know, because it's just like going back to a painting. You know, we don't know how much extra work Leonardo did on the Mona Lisa we don't know if he went back to it after it was finished you know the artist has the right to revise his own work and nobody should tell him different and of course that's not the world we live in (laughs) Uh, but people will
0: have opinions (laughs) yes
1: and you know I I, I was working with a a great artist called Moritat. he quit after like 9 or 10 issues what I realized was that he was taking shortcuts that caused me to take when you see that your artist is taking shortcuts Mm. you start making the story smaller And I finally found Axel And Axel will draw anything He can draw a city He doesn't do a close-up on a city With a few buildings in the background He draws the entire city He was trained as an architect He was young enough that I could train him The way I, I trained artists at Marvel UK And we were trained by Jim Shooter and Tom DeFalco To make comics the Marvel way you know, mm-hmm. and there's a lot of things that I see in comics today and I realised about my own comics for instance first 100 issues of Spider-Man try finding one that doesn't feature Spider-Man full figure <laughs> there's maybe one or two that is deliberate el- editorial policy hmm. and I remember discovering that for myself when I was working on Action Force if you print in a children's comic and children I, I say 7 to 16 is sort of your audience if you print a picture of Snake Eyes where he's full figure every limb every finger every digit every hairline not that he has a hairline you know, <laughs> you'll get 20 copies of that drawing in the mail that week if you have an issue where nobody's shown full figure no art comes in because we're always looking for all the information yeah mm-hmm. you, know, you know when you look at Spider-Man and when you look at old Marvel comics that were guided by Stan Lee and you know jack kirby and steve Ditko, they knew that either they discussed it or they just knew it intuitively and a lot of artists a lot of great artists know it intuitively Mm -hmm. because they want all the information they want to say i drew all of batman (laughs) (laughs) right even if they cheat a bit you know start looking at the great movie posters the great comic book covers just great art, and thinking, what can I see, you know? And what yes. do I want to see? There's another key thing in comics, which is that we're always looking for the eyes. We're always looking for people's expressions. So if we don't see the eyes, you know, it's either they're concealing the identity of Doctor Doom or whoever. <laughs> but it's very frustrating when we don't see the eyes. And you know, if if you watch a movie and you don't see the character's face for a long time, notice how you feel about that. There's a lot to be said for teaching artists. What makes a great comic work? Great comic book artists tend to be checking all those boxes anyway. But I was reading something yesterday. It was a Hellboy story. I think it was a Christmas story, and you don't see Hellboy's feet till like page ten, and it really bothered me. <laughs> you know? And that's the joke. You know, Jim Shooter used to say, "How do you know he's not wearing roller skates?" <laughs> And <laughs> and that's the joke, but it's it's a joke because it's true. You know, we want to know: mm-hmm. is he wearing roller skates? And they we want to make a comic see his eyes where like We're like ten pages reveal. in; it's
2: revealed that they're wearing roller skates. <laughs> well, <season>. You know, <laughs> but, and the,
1: a lot of comedy is based on lack of expectation or forced expectation. You know, a lot of comedy is based on what you think is going to happen, and then you suddenly see that they are wearing roller skates. You know, <laughs> that the Daleks are wearing roller skates. <laughs> There
0: you go. I think you should give another plug to Infinity Flux for letting us record here. Infinity Flux. Great. No notes. Uh, You're great it is, at you know,
1: <laughs> I, they don't need me to say this, but it is easily the best comic book store in this area probably in Tennessee the world (laughs) (laughs) if not the world I've signed at a lot of comic book stores the world over I'm a big fan of Travelling Man in England because they really know how to you know if you're not customer oriented you're dead in the water and Mm. there are some stores in this area that are not customer oriented I won't mention them but what I love about Infinity Flux is that great useful energy you Mm. know family Focused, collector-oriented as well, all the games, you know. As you know, I pick up Magic the Gathering sets for my son. You know, it's just a nice place to be. And I think a lot of stores forget that, that, you know, you need to make a store attractive. You need, And you need to make people feel like you can come into a comic book store and not know anything. It shouldn't be any kind of sort of elitist mentality. And some stores do have that kind of like, you know, if you don't know what you want to read, why are you... Why are you here? You know, it's right. very, it's new reader friendly. It's collector friendly. It's, it's just a friendly, friendly store. So, And a great sort of family feeling to it too.
2: I enjoy working here. So <laughs> thanks to Infinity Flux for letting us film here too. So yep. record here. They're on the internet at infinityflux.net. So you can buy stuff from them
1: and they'll sure, ship it to you. And they probably be the one who's shipping it. And they yeah, have I'll a Facebook Live yeah. every Sunday selling collector's items. So mm-hmm. look them up. <laughs> we got a lot of cool stuff
2: going on. Also, if you like this episode of the podcast, check out more on watchyourassalon.com. You can also find our podcast, our Patreon, and more at linktree slash watchathon. And I want to give a special shout out to Vincent El for providing us with our amazing theme song.
0: Thank you, Vince.
2: And check out more of their music at vincentel.bandcamp.com. And tune in next month when we talk about New New Earth.
1: When are we going to do Blink?
2: When we get to it. (laughs) Yeah. Richard's going to be back with uh, Blink for like a proper, like a regular episode. A -a watchathon. Yeah. And just talking about our thoughts on Blink. Hey, we didn't direct it commentary. Yeah. (laughs) But until next time, keep calm
1: and wrestle on.
0: Goodbye. And I love you in a platonic, parasocial way.
1: Bye, guys. (laughs) Thanks for listening, watching, slash, paying attention. (laughs) Putting it in your ear holes. Infinity Vlogs.